Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Well, thank you very, very much. It is great to be back with you. You look awesome, and Udella and I are so thrilled to be here, and we're so thrilled uh, to hear and, and see what God is doing in and through Canton Church, and uh, I appreciate the very kind words that uh, your pastor just shared about Udella and me, but uh, it's mutual. Uh, he and Corey are very dear to us, and uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for how God is using them. You are blessed with them as your pastors. Do you believe that this morning? Absolutely. Two great leaders. The entire team that's here and that you have put together, and uh, I am just so proud for them and for you, seeing what God is doing and what God is going to continue to do. As Pastor Jeremy said, I'm at Lee University, Udella and I. I've been there for over, a little over a year now, and uh, Lee's treating us right. In fact, they allow me to stay another year, so that's a good thing. I've got a job, so I, I'm going to continue to be with them. We do have five ministerial uh, de uh, development students here with us, and so uh, they're out uh, observing and getting to know this ministry a little bit. Lee is in its 100th year of existence. Uh, we're in our centennial celebration. And uh, we have over 5,300 students at Lee. Lee started 100 years ago as a Bible training school. Now it's a liberal arts school with about 54 different majors. My role is the vice president for ministerial development and the chair of the Christian ministries department. And so we have about, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 or so ministerial students combined with on-campus and online. And uh, God's got his hand on Lee University as well. If you happen to be a parent or a grandparent of an upcoming college student, you're looking for a great Christian liberal arts college where it truly is Christian, Christ-centered, uh, Lee University is a place to check out. Come and have a conversation with me and uh, I'll get you plugged into the people you need to talk with. If you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture that I'm going to be looking at will be on the screen. And this is a very familiar text to those of us that have been in church a long, long time. And for somebody that maybe is just starting to church or hasn't been in church much, you've heard this, this, this scripture. And this morning, I simply want to talk to you before we go into a time of communion together. I want to talk to you about the mercy rule. It's what I call it, the mercy rule. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have here today. We thank you for your presence that is already with us. We thank you, Father God, that we're not here in vain. Whether we came expecting nothing or we came expecting everything, you're here and you can do what we need in the next few moments. And Father, I ask now that you enable me to share the words that you want shared. May it penetrate and speak to our hearts, Father. And may you be glorified for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. His name was Charles Brown. He was a U.S. World War II B-17 bomber pilot. His first bombing mission was December 20th, 1943. And while they were on the mission, his squadron was attacked by German fighter planes. His plane was riddled with bullets. Huge gaping holes were blown on the side of his plane. The left part of his tail wing was completely blown off. His crew was 
wounded, a couple of them dead in the plane. They were lost. Enemy airspace, didn't know how to get back home. It was, it was a miracle that the plane was even still able to fly. And just when Brown thought it couldn't get any worse, he looked out the left side of his cockpit and just three feet above his left wing was flying a German fighter plane. And here's a picture of uh, the eyewitness accounts of the, those that survived that, that depicts this. Brown knew for sure he was going to be shot out of the air any moment. The German fighter pilot, name was Franz Steigler. He was a German ace. He needed one more kill to earn the Knight Cross, which was the highest medal of valor for a German soldier. He was dead set on taking that bomber down. But when he saw the damage to the plane, he saw the wounded crew, and he looked in the eyes of Brown, the pilot. Something happened inside. Something changed within him, and all of a sudden, he didn't destroy them. Instead, he led them to safety and escorted them. In the book, A Higher Call, that depicts this story, this is what the author writes in describing what took place in Steigler's mind. Steigler pressed his hand over the rosary. He kept his flight jacket. He, he eased his index finger off the trigger. He couldn't shoot. It would be murder. A German pilot who spared the enemy, though, risked death in Nazi Germany. If someone reported him, he would be executed. Yet Steigler could also hear the voice of his commanding officer who once told him, You follow the rules of war for you, not your enemy. You fight by rules to keep your humanity. Alone with the crippled bomber, Steigler changed his mission. Steigler escorted the bomber to safety over the North Sea and took one last look at the American pilot. Then he saluted him, peeled his fighter away, and returned to Germany. Good luck, Steigler said to himself. You're in God's hands. What creates the bond between enemies? Steigler was able to recognize the common humanity of the enemy when he locked eyes with Brown. It caused him to take mercy. This code that his commanding officer gave to him was something that at that moment was more than just mere words. It was something that transformed him. It was something that changed his entire outlook on war, his outlook on his enemy, something that turned an enemy bent on destruction to an ally who gives mercy. In Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Matthew records what we often refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the largest discourse recorded of Jesus Christ. Now, some believe that Jesus actually taught portions of this at different places at different times, and Matthew just pulled them all together in one long sermon just for the, uh, the writing itself. Well, whether it was one long sermon or it was taught other different places, we could say that the Sermon on the Mount is the code of the kingdom of God. It's as though Jesus Christ is saying through this sermon, this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what my people are about. This is how my people live. And in this sermon, this code of the kingdom, there is one statement that Jesus makes that I believe is a world changer if everybody got a hold of it. And it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. 
And it's simply this. Would you read it out loud with me, please? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Does anybody know what that's often called? Golden rule. Now, we don't know why it's called the golden rule. Jesus didn't say it was the golden rule. It just got tagged that centuries ago for whatever reason and has continued to carry that. But this is a world changer. Think about this a moment. If everybody in this room got a hold of this, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, how might that change your family? How might that change your workplace? How might that change every relationship that you have? What might that do if this state got a hold of that, if this nation got a hold of that? How might it change this nation and this world? What if Washington, D.C. got a hold of this? This is a world changer. And what I love about this, Jesus basically says it sums up the law and the prophets. What he's referring to is the Old Testament. He says, you want to know what all those 39 books with all those these and thous and whatevers and all these long begots and begats, you know what it's basically saying? Yes. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. But for today, I want to call it the mercy rule. I want to call it the mercy rule. And this is really the means, the mechanism, the motivation, the method, if you will, by which we can be people of mercy, by which we can approach our relationships with grace and love and mercy. There's three aspects of these words of Jesus Christ that I want to share with you today before we go into communion. The first one is this, that mercy calls for consistency. It calls for consistency. What does Jesus say? So in everything. He didn't say a few things. He didn't say every now and then. He didn't say at Christmas and at birthdays and at Thanksgiving when we're just naturally nice to people. He said, how often? Come on, talk to me. Everything. That means in every relationship I encounter in a given day, whether it's some stranger that I'm buying a cup of coffee from or someone that's the dearest person on the planet to me, everywhere in between, in everything, I'm to approach them with this mercy rule. I'm to approach them with this attitude of mercy, attitude of grace, attitude of kindness. I'm to approach them with this idea, how can I add value to their life today? How can I do that? It's a call for consistency. It's a way of life. And it doesn't have to be some big, huge act. It can be a simple gesture. It's a hello. It's a thank you. It's a good to see you. It's a good morning. It's a handshake. It's a hug. It's a smile. It's an encouraging text. It's a card. It's a, it's a whatever. Do you know smiles? Have you ever smiled at somebody? What do you do when, what, ha, what do we see happens when you smile at somebody? 99.9% .9 of the chance of what's going to happen. They're going to smile back. I encourage you, the next time you get on an elevator full of people, just turn around and smile at them. They're going to think you're crazy. One of the things I love to do more than anything else at Lee is walk across the campus. And what I intentionally try to do, every student I see, I try to smile. And it never fails. They can be deep in thought. They can have a frown on their face. When I smile at them, they smile back. It's simple stuff. In fact, I went on Google and did a search on random acts of kindness just to see what's happening out there. 
And there's all kind of neat stuff that people are doing. I came across two that were very interesting to me. One came off a Pinterest page of a mom who had taken her daughter for the first time to the Magic Kingdom, Disney World. And the encounter that her little girl had with the security guard, it should be on the screen right here. And this is what she put on her Pinterest page. Upon arriving at the Magic Kingdom, one of the security guards said to Ollie, Excuse me, princess, can I have your autograph? I could see that the book was filled with children's scribbles as the guard asked the same question of many little princesses. Next slide. Ali could not get over the fact that the guard thought she was a real princess. Now think about this a moment. This is a security guard. Very noble, necessary occupation. He could have taken the attitude, I'm not going to engage with anybody. I don't have to talk to anybody. I'm just going to make sure the security is covered, but I'm not going to talk to a soul. Been doing his job. No. What's he want to do? He wants to add value. He wants to add value. So little girls... Hi, princess, can I have your autograph? Simple. Here's another one. This goodie bag that you're about to see on the screen was actually put together by a couple who had twin babies, twin boys. And they were about to get on a plane to fly across the country. Now, if you've ever been on a plane on a long flight and there's babies on the plane and they start crying, you want to pull your hair out. The mercy rule kind of goes out the window to have an amen in the house on that. So here's what this couple does. They put this goodie bag together, and they made enough for every passenger on the plane. So while they're waiting at the gate, they go and hand these goodie bags out to every passenger, and they had this note inside, and this is what the note says. Hello, we're twin boys on our first flight, and we were only 14 weeks old. We'll try to be on our best behavior, but we'd like to apologize in advance just in case we lose our cool, get scared, or our ears hurt. Our mom and dad, a.k.a. our portable milk machine and diaper changers, have earplugs available if you need them. We're all sitting in 20E and 20F. If you want to come by and get a pair, we hope you have a great flight. It's not rocket science. In everything. Now, Jesus Christ... In Luke chapter 6, he gives us some simple things to look at that can add value, that can have this mercy rule applied into our lives. Because in Luke 6, Luke records in that section of his writing this golden rule where Jesus is when he shares this. And let me just summarize Luke 6 very quick in terms of these uh, uh, simple ways that we can show this. He says, love others, do good to others, bless others, pray for others. Now... Who can't do that? Love others, do good to others, bless others, pray for others. In other words, love, do good, bless, pray. Love, do good, bless, pray. Say that with me. Love, do good, bless, pray. One more time. Love, do good, bless, pray. Simple. Right? Who can't do that? But you know I just set you up, right? Because let's look at the context of where Jesus says this in Luke 6. And let's go to Luke 6, verses 27 and 28. Look at this. But I tell you who hear me, love, uh-oh, your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who... Now see, now Jesus just made me mad. Wow. Christ just took the mercy rule 
to a whole new level. This mercy where the first call is for consistency. The second call is a call for a choice. I've got to make a decision to do this. I mean, Jesus Christ said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a decision I have to make. Others. He didn't define others. He didn't say do unto a few others. He didn't, do, he didn't say do it unto a selective group of others. He didn't say do it to the others that like you or the others that you like. He said do unto others. The person on your left, your right, behind you, in front of you is an other. And guess who else classifies as an other? And that's our enemies. Those we don't get along with. Those that get one on our one last nerve. Those that have hurt us. His calls for a choice. This isn't just when I feel like it. This isn't based on what somebody else is or isn't doing or has done or hasn't done. It's a decision I have to make. In fact, listen to the rest of the words of Luke 6 that Jesus Christ says about this very idea. Here's what he says in Luke 6, verses 32 through 36. He says this, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to receive in full. Next slide, if there's another one, it should have the rest of it. Yes. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you'll be children of the Most High. Now look at this. Because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as whom? Your Father is merciful. Now here's the question. Is He our Father in name only or is He our Father in truth and reality? This is the character of God. And I know, trust me, it's not easy to love, do good, bless, pray for those that have hurt us, those we struggle with. And as I'm saying these very words about those kinds of people, you are thinking of somebody right now. And some of us, as we're thinking of that person or persons, there's a knot that's coming in our stomach right now. There's a, there's a flash of anger that could be rising. There's a, there's a flash of bitterness that could be rising. There, there could even be some hurt as you begin to think about that. And all of us have family members that get on our one last nerve. That one family member you hope never comes to any family reunion or any family gathering because you know it's just going to end in some type of confusion and fight. Every family has that person. And if you can't think of anybody in your family like that, I hate to tell you this, you're that person. <laughs> it's not easy. And it's a risk. Pastor Mark, are you sitting there telling me that if I'm extending mercy and kindness and I'm extending grace and I'm trying to do my part and that person still has destructive behavior towards me, if it's an abusive kind of situation that I've got to stand there and have my brains beat out? Absolutely not. In fact, just for a brief moment, let's look at what happens. How do we respond when mercy isn't returned? What do we do when we extend mercy, we extend grace, we extend kindness, but mercy isn't returned. Let me share three quick things. First of all, when mercy isn't returned, treat people with mercy anyway. 
Do it anyway. Because it isn't about what they do. It's about what God is asking us to do. The choice isn't about whether they respond or don't respond. The choice is based on the idea that this is what my Heavenly Father, I want to do it out of obedience to Him, and I want to do it out of a reflection of His character and nature. Extend mercy anyway. Secondly, I would say, if you don't get mercy in return, you may have to disassociate from that person or those persons. You may have to create some distance between you and them. If they are abusive, if they don't respond and they continue in destructive behavior, and it is harmful towards you or towards people you're responsible for, like children, you don't have to stand there and let your brains be beat in. Get out of that relationship. Create the distance. Continue to have a merciful attitude towards that person. We don't get out of the relationship wanting harm to to come to them or seeing vengeance to come upon them we still have a merciful attitude we want to see good come to them but we're creating that distance to get out of harm's way does that make sense what I'm saying to you I can I can create distance and still have the right attitude towards that person I can still reflect my Heavenly Father the last thing I would share when you don't get mercy in return is this remember no merciful act is insignificant or unnoticed they may not say thank you. They may not acknowledge it. They may not respond. It can, be, it can be as if you did nothing. But God sees it. In fact, Jesus Christ just said, you do this. Great is your reward. He notices. He sees it. This mercy rule calls for consistency it calls for a choice and then lastly it calls for Christ it calls for Christ because you see I maybe have moments of mercy without Jesus but I think to have a life of momentum of mercy takes Jesus actively working in my life because it's only by Jesus Christ that I even understand what mercy is. It's only by Him and how He has treated me that I get an idea of what mercy and grace and kindness are. I mean, what did Jesus just say a moment ago in the verses we saw? He was kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Guess what? I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus Christ. We're the ungrateful and wicked. I don't deserve, didn't deserve, don't deserve, and will never deserve the mercy and the kindness and the grace of Jesus Christ. If, if I struggle with the notion of loving and praying for and blessing and doing good to my enemies, if you're struggling with that, let me just say this, be grateful that God doesn't struggle with it. <laughs> Because we were his enemies. The Apostle Paul, I think, captures this, this, this uh, amazing, merciful grace of God in Christ in, in his writing in Ephesians. He says this in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, say he's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Jesus Christ. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no man can boast. See, the only way that I see for me to have a lifestyle, a momentum of the mercy rule working in my life is that I constantly remember, I constantly understand that I did not deserve the mercy and grace of kindness extended towards me. And that person that I'm having to love that is not, is not very lovable, that I'm having to be kind to that's not very kind, I can only do it out of the understanding and the realization and the transforming experience of how the mercy and grace of God has healed me and changed me. Vengeance destroys. Mercy heals. See, our nature is not merciful. Our nature is to get a pound of flesh. Our nature is to get even. Our nature is to want to see that person that harmed us harmed. I need the nature of my heavenly Father through Jesus working in me by the Holy Spirit. Vengeance destroys, mercy heals. Franz Steigler, who I talked about at the beginning of this message, the German ace, the reason why he was an ace, the reason why he was such a killer in the air was because of vengeance, because of hatred for the Americans, because of the bitterness that he had, because his brother was also a fighter pilot that had been shot down and killed by the Americans. And that's what drove him, man, was that hatred and that vengeance to get even. But you know what began to happen? He began to lose his soul. He said he began to go into a dark hole where he didn't think he was going to recover. Every kill took him deeper into the blackness. He was losing total perspective of the dignity of humanity until he encountered Charles Brown and the crippled B-17. And when he showed mercy, it changed. He, he began to crawl out of the darkness. He, he began to get out of the hole. When the war was over, Charles Brown survived the war. Steigler survived the war. Charles Brown retired and relocated to Florida. Steigler, he ended up relocating to Vancouver, Canada. But Brown spent 43 years after the war trying to find that German pilot who spared his life and the life of his crew. He wanted to find out who that was. 43 years he searched. Then one day, one day he received a letter in Florida where he lived. And it simply said this. He said, I understand you're looking for me. I always wondered what happened to that pilot of that B-17. I'm glad you survived. It was from Steigler. 
He had heard he was looking for him, got his address, sent him a letter. As soon as Brown got that letter, he got in contact with Steigler. Steigler came down to Florida. Guess what? Steigler and Brown became lifelong friends. In fact, here they are together. They became fishing buddies. Steigler's on the left, Brown's on the right. They took trips together. They became inseparable for the rest of their lives. Brown, he decided he wanted to have a reunion. And there were three crew members from his plane that were still alive. He invited them to Florida, all their extended family. There were some 25 extended family members. Invited them to Florida, invited Steigler and his wife down to meet them. And while they were in that reunion, every single family member individually at some point in time came up to Steigler and said, thank you for sparing the crew because if you would not have spared their lives, I wouldn't be here. They both died around the same time in 2008. The author of the book, A Higher Call, who tells this story, was in Charles Brown's library, and he was just looking at the books in his library, and he came across a book about fighter pilots that was given to Brown by Steigler. And inside, Steigler had written this note. Now remember, Steigler's brother had been killed by American fighter pilots. This is what the inside of this book said when Steigler gave it to Brown. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, five days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction. A plane so badly damaged, it was a wonder that she was still flying. The pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie. Your brother, Franz. If Steigler would have shot Brown down, it would not have brought his brother back. But because he gave mercy, he got another brother and an entire new extended family. Let me just tell you, vengeance destroys, mercy heals. I invite you to stand all over this building right now for the next few moments. And if you're comfortable with this, if you're not, no worries. But if you're comfortable with this, can you just lift your hands to him right now? One, as a, an extension to say, thank you for your mercy. I need your mercy. I'm grateful for your mercy. I'm grateful for your grace and your kindness but also presenting ourselves to be healed of that mercy and healed by that grace, healed by that kindness, and to be instruments of that grace and instruments of that mercy. Father, I pray for every relationship represented here, every marriage, every daughter and son and, and father and mother, every, every relationship in the workplace, whatever it may be, God, I pray your mercy would flow into those relationships, your grace, your mercy rule would rule. I pray for all those that need to take that step, whatever it may be. Holy Spirit, give them the courage, give them the wisdom, give them the discernment by which to do it. And we're believing. We're believing for healing in every way, shape, and form. For one purpose, your praise, your glory, your honor, in Jesus' name, amen. Can you give God praise for his mercy here today? Thank you again for listening. 
If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.